Hi there. Welcome again to season four of What I Did Next from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fuad, and I hope you're enjoying the lineup so far. If you've heard the show before, you'll know that my guests are leaders in their fields from across the Middle East, and our conversations revolve around their life's pivot points. We all have these pivots in life. Some are hard and some are magical, taking you into a whole new amazing direction in life. I'm joined on the show today by Caroline Luca. Carol is an art consultant and ex-managing director of Christie's Middle East. Carol and I are old friends and we had a great chat about her career and the art world, specifically the regional scene. Like many of us, Carol shifted careers. She started out as a corporate lawyer in both Paris and Cairo before moving to the UAE and joining the Abu Dhabi Tourism and Culture Authority. That role pivoted her into the world of art and she became intricately involved with the establishment of the Louvre, the Guggenheim and the Zayed National Museums. The 10 years she spent in this role were formative years in her ongoing art education and provided the basis for her next jumping off point, joining the Middle East team at Christie's in Dubai. We'll get into all that in a minute. Let's start with our icebreaker questions. When was the last time Caroline did something for the first time? Actually, very recently. This summer, I took a holiday, uh, a real holiday that didn't involve laptops and calls and conference calls and team calls and you know um it was incredibly fulfilling it was so nice i was away for five weeks with my family as you know i've uh, recently left my previous role so it was an opportunity to really take some time out and i realized it's been 20 years since i took a holiday that didn't involve work as well wow and carol in today's world where you're constantly connected by every device that's that's a hard thing to do actually to completely disconnect it is and it took work it took me having to consciously leave my phone um for example when we were away on holiday uh, close to the beach i would leave the phone at home and not take it with me and just rely on communicating with my husband and my son and friends and it was very very um it, it was lovely it was it was a very different feeling to what i know was your husband also off his devices and was he the same in the same frame of mind uh not really i mean he's uh my husband is very attached to his phone <laughs> <laughs> so even if it's not for work you know he's 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 a very social person um he has a lot of friends and family and it, you know he likes social media so it was it, it was a little bit uh, harder for him but we really did enjoy just completely taking time off because he also had just left his role so yeah. we became suddenly a, a household of unemployed <laughs> um and um and it was a very different holiday to the to the past it's quite liberating it, incredibly liberating we had to relearn in a way to connect with one another um in person because we suddenly had to sit for hours facing each other and uh, having to do things. I was trying to get my my son as well, who's quite young, off the screen. So, you know, you suddenly go back to your own childhood and think about things you did with your parents. Uh, but also conversations were like, you know, it wasn't, it, it's usually there's always a phone somewhere or a device. And, you know, just sitting at lunch and just saying, right, what, let's talk about a current subject or let's talk about family or about, you know, whatever the subject. And it was, it was actually, it took a while. It took a few days for us to get used to it. So that was very interesting, I found. Carol, are you are you more team Instagram or are you more team Twitter in your social consumption, social media consumption? 
I'm definitely Instagram. I'm definitely team Instagram. Um, I do like to follow Twitter, but I find, I don't find it always very easy uh, to follow. So, you know, I post on social media, on uh, mainly on Instagram, and that's where I get a lot of my um, feeds from as well. And do you use it primarily just as a as a relaxing tool, like just to sit around and 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 be entertained, or do you actually look at it for for work? Um, do you follow accounts for work? So it's really a mix. I mean, um, uh, obviously, I started originally following uh, people on Instagram. I've started actually following accounts like museums, right? So I started with the art scene. This was really my, which is obviously one of my interests and passions. And, um, and I realized it was, you know, a great way to find out what they were doing, exhibitions, uh, works that they had in their permanent collections. And from there, obviously, I got onto galleries and auction houses and, you know, and, and the art scene then grew in that respect. Um, so I follow it a lot yeah. of work, but then I also yeah. discovered a lot of artists via Instagram that, you know, small artists and, you know, the algorithms somehow work where you you see more and more emerging artists from the region, but also globally. Um, so I use it for that, but I also use it, of course, for personal connections, you know, people I don't see um, on a regular mm -hmm. basis, family and friends from all over the world. Uh, and I and the third reason, which is really an, become an, a really important one, is that I follow it. Uh, I get a lot of my news from social media because as you know specifically news from our region isn't always reported um on news outlets so following certain bloggers or what's happening and you know in in the wider middle east is is always um a bit more accurate and time sensitive when it comes to social yeah. media and if you could only pick five accounts i know it's a very difficult question actually <laughs> it is because you're you're getting rid of a lot of things you actually like but if you could only pick five who would you choose? I'm not going to name necessarily accounts, but I definitely the first one would be um, I would follow, um, you know, some sort of art uh, outlet. So it could be um, it, it could be a museum, uh, an auction house or a gallery, like someone where I can get a lot of the art news from. Um, I would definitely follow a design page as well, because I'm a big lover of uh, architecture and design. I would also follow uh, one I will name actually is Sultana Kasimi because for me he's uh, I call him the all-in-one account. <laughs> you get news, art, music, um, whatever you want, plants. Uh, you know, like whatever yeah, you can yeah. think of, and you're it's sure true. you're not going to miss something. So even if you've missed an alert somewhere, he's reposted it. He was on our show, as you know, last season. And and he named some incredible accounts that I had no idea about and really esoteric and um, really interesting people to follow. Yes. Yeah, very he, nice. And through him, actually, I started following other accounts, like you're saying, um, that I had no idea about, which were very re regional. And it was great to, to, to get to know a little bit that world. Um, Another one would probably be an, a news outlet, and I think the fifth would have to be one of the satirical um, pages of the art market because everyone needs a little bit of humor. And to be honest, as you know, the art the art scene can be a little bit elitist, so having a little bit of satire in that is always needed. 
which account is that, Carol? I think at the moment, I'm, I'm, uh, I find um, Jerry Gogosian to be a fu very fun account. She's very blunt. Uh, she's very harsh on the art scene. Uh, but, you know, you get you get your laugh. I take it with a pinch of salt. But there is always uh, interesting facts that she or angles that she considers in the way she approaches uh, the art market. I want to move into um, yourself, actually, your actual uh, career. I know you were born and raised in Egypt, um, and you have Lebanese heritage. So uh, one side is Lebanese, one side is Egyptian, um, but also I have a lot of blood mixed in from Armenia, from uh, Italy. So, And this is a very typical um, story of Egypt because Egypt, uh, you know, has so many nationalities over the decades and centuries that have all blended together and 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 you're the and you're a product of that and like all of us in Egypt there's we're all mixes we're all mixes so you are a francophone and you ended up doing your studies in Paris at the Sorbonne and you uh trained as a lawyer um did you have someone in your family who was in law or did you just decide that this is what you the area you wanted to specialize in um no i had no lawyers in the family um and uh, to be honest, I didn't even want to be a lawyer. I, I became a lawyer by coincidence. <laughs> I wanted to get into Sciences Po and uh, I thought I would take the uh, slightly easier route instead of doing a prépa. I just went into, um, at the time there was something called the DUG, which is the first two years of, of university in France. And if you did that in certain subjects, then it allowed you to get into Sciences Po. And I wanted to do Sciences Po and international relations because I wanted at the time to become a reporter. Ah, I didn't know that. Yeah, so that's why I got into law, and um, and eventually I was studying. So I I did you know I did law. I was also doing art history at the time, and uh, and eventually when I I was in Nice before before Paris, and when I then moved to the Sorbonne, uh, I found myself you know all the way to the masters, and I was like, oh well, I finished law, and I might as well just train as a lawyer. So it was a little bit of a coincidence it wasn't so much planned um but it took me on a incredible journey after that because you know there are so many professions that are like callings and like vocations and you feel called to do it like doctors i'm always in awe of doctors you know and people who are uh, a little bit you know if you're in theology then you have a calling as well did you feel that this was your lane that you'd found your lane or I mean, I'm I'm guessing the answer already because you're clearly not doing that now. But at the time, did it feel like the right fit for you? Yes and no, it did because I. Uh, so part of why I wanted to become a reporter is that I really I was very uh, detailed focused. I really liked getting into. I I never approach a subject like in a very uh, superficial way. So I like the details. I like to read. I wanted to understand vertically a subject. And um, and I, I realized that by becoming a lawyer, you had to really understand certain industries. Specifically, if you become a specialized lawyer, you had to really understand that industry inside out. And you had to really, really um, get into the finer details and understanding all the angles to it. So it did fulfill a certain um, you know, 
need I had at the time, but also I found that it formed me very well for the future, which was, you know, a more strategic approach to what I do and and really a strategic role. Um, having I always find that people with a little bit of a legal formation have a very analytical mind, but also a very pragmatic mind because because the idea is that you always have to find the solution rather than finding the problem. Um, so I think it was great as a, as as a, for me in formative years. Caroline's early law career taught her solid skills in strategic planning, negotiation, and perhaps above all, patience, which have all helped her navigate the sometimes difficult waters that constitute the Middle East art market. We'll get back to Caroline's story after this break. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, you can find out more about the screenwriting process with acclaimed filmmaker Mo Hevzi, or about the luxury design industry with Monez and Ayad Raouf, the sisters behind Ochtin. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Malak Fuad and you're listening to my conversation with Caroline Luca. What happened for you to make that next move? So you, you clearly went into a different direction, uh, which is the world you're in now, which is the art world. How did you or what happened for you to make that change? So you went from being a very corporate lawyer um, in a very established firm with what would have looked like a pretty clear trajectory, a pretty clear path ahead. So I think you have to go back to my teenage years. So I never really left, um, let's say, the art world. I was always part of it. Um, when I was when I was doing my drug and law, I was still studying. I did electives in uh, art history. Uh, it was a, a personal passion of mine. Art was always a personal passion of mine. So whenever I had free time, I would, you know, go to museums and, and galleries and shows and 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 I always stayed very much involved in it. Um, when I when I was working with DLA, uh, as you know, most lawyers have uh, they can do pro bono work and there is a certain quota a month. And I would give my entire pro bono time to artists, uh, residencies, um, uh, Galleries. So to give you an example, I, I used to do all my pro bono work with that time when I was in Cairo. I did it with um, the townhouse. I did it with the CIC. I helped, I helped artists like uh, Lara Belladi uh, through a plagiarism case. Um, so it was always there to lend a hand wherever I could in that scene because, you know, it's, it's always the ones that can never really go to a law firm, specifically international law firms. And um, and I remained very much uh, part of it, wanting to help it to the point that I remember wanting going to the managing partner at the time at uh, at DLA and saying to him, I'd really like to open an art law department. And he was like, you know, that's not going to work, but <laughs> you can keep trying. So, yeah, but at the time it was just an outlet for you to uh, indulge this passion of yours within the framework of your work. 
you didn't see it as a stepping stone to actually jumping into that world full time, did you? No, I didn't. Or did you? I, I, mean I was hoping to. I was hoping to, which was actually one of my hopes moving back to, I thought I would move back to Europe and I would do it there. But um, the reality was, you know, it was a very small scene for for the Middle East, and it was definitely not enough to to engage, let's say, in, in doing legal work for, for their art scene, although they really needed it. Um, so it was personal. There was a certain indulgence, but wherever I could see an opportunity to help from the legal side, I did. And I was hoping that more and more, you know, as time mm. passed and internet intellectual property as well, laws were developing in the region, that we would see more the importance of protecting the legacy of those artists, um, of the museums, trying to help them, um, you know, with with areas that were not my specialty, like restitution, but are areas of, that had become very important with time. So what happened next for you, Carol? How did you make that jump finally? So I, I think one of the pivots for me was moving to uh, the UAE. So after uh, having lived, you know, between Cairo, Paris, uh, back to, you know, like, and and before that, you know, in various place, places, I... Um, I decided to move with the same firm to the UAE. At the time, they they had just announced that the Louvre Abu Dhabi and a number of museums were about to open in the UAE and there were all these projects. And I knew that the firm I was working at at the time um, was working with the operating body or let's say the government entity in the UAE that was going to be responsible for the, those museums. So I really saw it as an opportunity to try and um, get closer to that world. Um, so I moved to Dubai, uh, in 2008, towards the end of 2008. And, um, and I got seconded immediately to what the time, what was called TDIC, uh, which was the vehicle that was responsible for all the cultural ambitions of the UAE. And, and, and by the way, at, at that time it was five museums, it wasn't three like now. And, uh, very quickly after that, I got offered a full-time position there to, um, basically run, a, a legal department for, um, the cultural side of those ambitions. So everything to do with the museums, the art fair and certain other projects as well. Um, that was incredible because obviously it meant that everything I loved, <laughs> which was art yeah. and culture, uh, I could combine it with my day-to-day -day work and really focus on that. So I, I took on that role as general counsel and I stayed on for 10 years, as you know, and, um, and I, I'm, you know, I, I went all the way from a, a complete incubation phase and it was a very, very small team on the ground that was working on these projects to really all the way until the Louvre opened and then, uh, which is the time after which I left. Did you stay with them a little bit after they opened, Carol, or did you wait, did you leave as when they opened? I left uh, pretty much right after they opened. Uh, the idea was that you know, a bit like everyone uh, that moves to Dubai or, or Abu Dhabi, um, there is that transient mentality. You know, we all come here thinking we're going to be here for a year or two. And I remember when I joined, I thought I'm going to stay till the opening, which at the time was scheduled to be in 2012. So I thought this is plenty. It's five years. I'll, you know, I'll finish those and then I'll move on. And again, with the hopes of moving back to Europe. And um and you know things got things changed. Uh, the teams uh, moved, um, and the ambitions also got a bit more real. Um, and 
we worked on three museums across those 10 years and realized that we had, they had to be staggered and they needed, you know, the, a much longer time to actually build a collection, build the museums, look at really how much capacity that for the people to come in uh, to understand those ambitions, uh, to educate as well the, the scene around us, which was really the, the UAE art scene, but also the audience and, um, and turn really a public to an audience. So that took time. Um, and I felt like after 10 years of having done a lot of the legwork on one and opened, you know, which was the Louvre, but also all the legwork on the Guggenheim, Abu Dhabi and the Zayed National Museum, um, I had fulfilled my personal interest and my, you know, my ambitions, as well as, um, you know, I had delivered a lot of what they needed as well. And I had established a legal department. I had also done a lot of work on strategy. Um, so it was time for me to move into the different, you know, another phase and I was ready for it. So I, I just felt staying on could just become repetitive. And presumably a role like that, um, not just the the fact that you came in at the beginning and were, you know, were able to lead a, lay a foundation for the, 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 you know, the legal framework, but I presume you also made incredible contacts in the in this world, um, this art world, both international and and local, um, and that would have also allowed you to take the next step. Absolutely, it was well many things. So first of all, you know you're dealing with. Um, three museums, which are very different schools. You know, you've got the, the Louvre, uh, Musée du Louvre, which is very French with the Réunion des Musées, um, in a very established and, uh, and, um, and rigid system. And then you had the Guggenheim in New York, which is a very uh, different approach to the museum world and, and, uh, and, you know, trustees and, and, collectors and patrons. And then you had the Zayed National Museum, which was at the time um, really being looked after, or at least the, the, a lot of the drawings for, and the narrative was being drawn by uh, the British Museum. So I was lucky enough to really get the three schools. And as and one of the advantages, well, it was very hard at the time, but one of the advantages of having a very small team on the ground, um, you know, which was, let's say, the government team, is that you did have really so many people for in every department. So um, wherever I could get any information, I would jump on onto it. Any opportunity for me to learn something outside of the legal scope, um, I would do. So I would sit in curatorial meetings. I would go to artist, um, you know, residencies. I would go to studio visits, and partly because I wanted to understand as well the industry inside out, so that I can cater really to my employer in the best way in in, in through the legal work, right? Because. I always say, if you don't understand the industry very well, you're never going to be able to preempt a lot of the loopholes and the difficulties that may come, and and therefore, mm -hmm. you know, in in the way you would put them together as a you know in a contract, for example, or in your arrangements. So, I I seized every opportunity I could to learn about the industry as a whole, and um, and with that, of course, came a lot of contacts and a lot of connections and um, and networks, and yeah. Um, and that's what actually led me to the next phase, like you say, which was uh, moving on to Christie's. Mm -hmm. And actually, I got a call from them to say, would you like to apply? You know, there is this role for a managing director that's coming up and for the region. And I and I, you know, and it, it was primarily through people that I knew and had worked with uh, when I was 
at TDIC, um, which eventually got called uh, TCA and then DCT. Yeah. But going through that uh, aspect of, of the business. Carol's role at Christie's took her back to the private sector. We'll get into that and what's next for her right after this short break. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Youssef told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now author Hala Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. Hi again, I'm Malak Fuad, and you're listening to What I Did Next. This is my chat with Caroline Luca. After her involvement with the establishment of the Louvre, the Guggenheim, and the Zayed National Museums, Carol's next big move was to join the auction house Christie's as managing director in 2019. When I left, I, I didn't really think I would um, I would uh, move away, let's say, from cultural foundations or museums. But I always had I, I had missed the private sector very much because um, government is. Um, you know, is is a very safe place. But uh, having come from, like you know, the world of of law firms before, um, I was very much. Uh, I was always very excited about, um, you know, about the private sector. It's 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 a lot faster. It's a lot quicker. It's, and it depends really on on what's happening around you in, in the economy. So um, having that opportunity to you know, to to jump back onto that that side was very intriguing, but also very interesting. And I've always had this love for the art market, uh, which I had followed for years. And um, yeah, and I took on the role and I was there for three years. Auction Houses is a whole other world of its own. It's, uh, you know, it's an entire ecosystem of its own. Um, it was very exciting, but it was also um, very challenging because, you know, there was you know, maybe a year and a half or after I joined, uh, COVID hit. So we suddenly had this whole world changed around us, which is very much based on uh, a very uh, specific and very predictable way of doing things. Uh, and, you know, suddenly we had to think outside the box as an auction house. So it was very exciting. Um uh, but also scary. And um, yeah, and I, I stayed on until I left, uh, you know, a few months ago. So tell me, Carol, a little bit about how do collectors in the Middle East differ to collectors in other regions of the world? Are they cautious? Um, do they tend to like to build a diverse collection? And we know that modern art is obviously um, very well understood. Modern Arab art is very well understood. We know who the big painters are. Are people moving more towards understanding contemporary art more? What's happening now in, in, in the scene? It depends which angle you're looking at 
from. But definitely there is a shift towards uh, the contemporary art scene. I mean, a lot of the galleries around us, and I look at Dubai as an example, a lot, most of the galleries in Asakal, they're all offering contemporary artworks of contemporary artists from either the region or who are, some are not from the region, but they're based, let's say, in the UAE or somewhere in the region. Um, and that covers as well South Asian. Um, there is, I think, where we are, where we where we need to give a little bit of support as a whole, as a community, is definitely the contemporary art scene. Because as a collector, a lot of them will, of course, I, I for example, one of the things I like to do is I like to work with collectors who really love art, who really collect because of their love for art and because they are happy to see an artwork on their walls when they wake up in the morning and you know it gives it brings them joy as opposed to for example a lot of collectors that we see today who are more focused on investments um if you look at it from that perspective um it's our eyes i think because of our you know history because of the politics because of the stories that come with modern art it was easier for a lot of collectors to 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 buy modern art they can relate to it it's a story from a grandmother or a mother or a country it's patriotic it's so on and so forth moving like you said towards contemporary can be a little bit more challenging because a lot of it can be conceptual it's mixed media it could be um in abstract in a way that is not easily understood so it requires a lot more of an intellectual uh let's say i wouldn't say it's not about capacity but just an intellectual effort to really try and understand what is the message behind that artwork and what is it that they're trying to say um and how current or relevant is it for for one to, to to buy into it so of course when you see something that has you know uh a slash on a canvas and that's it you you think well why am i paying fifty thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars for that but there is an entire history behind it because that artist got influenced for example by another artist or by non another group of artists and modernists and and so on and so forth and and therefore yeah. it comes to the current peak but i i think one of the one of the you know, one of the best answers I always say to people and tell me, I don't really like to buy contemporary or I'm not sure. I'm, I always say, you know, art, every, all art was once contemporary. It's a very famous saying, but it's so true. All art was once contemporary, right? And I yeah. think if we don't support today, specifically when it comes to the Middle East, if we don't support the art scene um, and the contemporary art scene, and we don't do our role, it, all of us together, be it as an art professional, as myself, or as a collector, or as a patron, or as a buyer, or even just as an audience and children, you know, we're not going to help that scene get to where they, you know, that that get the legacy that they need, but also build yeah. on, on their own. I also think that, you know, uh, uh, across the centuries, all the large collectors, um, it's it's quite an instinctive process as well. Um, when you're building a collection, you have to buy what you like. And I think you have to have, a, a, you take a leap of faith because you you might go into an artist studio who's, you know, not known, but fall in love with a piece. And you just, you have to, believe that that it will add to your collection and whether you look at it from a monetary point of view or just a, a collection of works that complement each other that you like full stop I think that's the way to look at it because otherwise as you said it becomes an investment fund and then that's a completely different way of approaching it absolutely 
But also, I think, you know, collectors are starting, if you look at the, if you look at collectors in the region, and this is where it's becoming very interesting, is that um, they have understood the need to move on. You know, it's the, the big collectors back in the day used to be the collectors of modern and with time, with shows, with auction houses, with travel, with fairs, they've all now realized the value that comes with supporting the contemporary art scene. And of course you have the ones who buy anyway, because like you say, they love it. So they, they can see value in adding something on, on their walls and it may increase in value eventually from a financial perspective, but it may not, but it brings them joy and happiness. And you have the ones who've become more and more institutionalized. So if I look at, you know, um, if I look at, for example, the, the art scene in the Middle East, uh, the Lebanese collectors, for example, some of the Lebanese collectors have really uh, taken already a few steps ahead from the rest of the region in terms of they've gone through that process of understanding that not only they've bought some really important works, but they have now a duty to really help spread what and, 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 and um, share what they have with uh, the local community with the wider world, with an understanding of what they're building. So some of them have moved towards foundations. Some of them also have moved away. So if you look at, for example, in Lebanon, you have a couple of foundations that have been set up by collectors. Um, some, for example, have evolved, their taste has evolved and therefore their strategy has evolved in what they're buying over the years to really become, a, you know, focus on a specific subject uh, or a specific, um, um, a timeline that they, they're trying to draw. So really looking at, the, the, so there is more and more understanding of the art of collecting because collecting is not just about buying artworks. Yeah. And I think this came about because also the museums, the patronage, um, the, the galleries have started pushing more and more. So you're seeing uh, one of the things that I'm very proud of is I'm seeing today some of the Middle Eastern collectors um, get on acquisition committee meeting, uh, committees of like uh, the Tate or Pompidou or Guggenheim. And that is important because if we don't fight, you know, if we don't, if, if we don't fight for our own, which is, you know, our own art from the region, who's going to do it for us? So, you know, with them, and but that also means Absolutely. it's an exchange. It means that when they sit on those committees, not only they're advocating the art from the region, but they're also learning from other regions, from be it Asia or the West or South America, they're also were understanding what's their principles and what is their trajectory of collecting, right? And how do they approach patronage? So, yeah. so all of this is really just becoming more and more um, sophisticated in a way. Mm. But it also means that it's pushing the galleries, pushing the art scene to really do a little bit more and become a little bit more thought provoking. So if I look at a place like, you know, in Egypt, for example, one of the best examples I can think of is Gypsum Gallery, because not only um, has the gallery pushed for emerging artists uh, and for a very important set of, you know, new thinking, but for conceptual artists, for, you know, for pushing the art scene to the maximum, but also the gallery really took it upon themselves to become international. So they've taken all the right steps. You know, they are yeah. in the fairs, they're in the right fairs. Um, they have the right marketing. They have a 
beautiful curatorial programming. And I, I can only hope that I see more and more gypsums, you know, around in, in Cairo, for example. Yeah. So we're definitely seeing the shift. We're definitely seeing a better understanding and, um, you know, a, a more sophisticated approach. But we're still, you know, it, it's work mm -hmm. in progress. So for you, Carol, now that you've left Christie's, what what is next for you? Um, are you going to be working as a... Con you had mentioned to me that you might be working as a consultant. You're staying in the art scene, obviously, but in what capacity or or where do you see a, a niche for yourself? You know, first of all, I'm actually enjoying at the moment a little bit of the time uh, with my son, just because, um, um, as you know, I had my, my little one uh, during COVID, at the beginning of COVID. So it was a very um, exciting time, but also a very frightening time. And, uh, you know, working from home was, a, had a, you know, it was a bit of a double-edged sword because it was a blessing that I could be home 24 hours a day uh, and therefore be around. But at the same time, it meant that it, it was a curse because, you know, once you're sat at your desk, you know, you don't really need to get up because you're at home anyway. So I ended up also working, you know, 12, 15, 16 hours a day. And um, when travel resumed and all that, I realized that it, it was a lot for where I wanted to be after, you know, 20 years of, of work, where I wanted to be in my life. I don't think I'll ever leave the art scene. It's a it's a it's a scene that I very much love. It's a practice that I understand and I and I hope I can only continue to give to and learn from as well. Um, but I think where my consultancy is going to take me is definitely areas where I can see gaps in the region that I would love to help and plug. I think also the fact that you you've um, you know you have this international aspect to your your career um will will give you this ability to work with collectors but also work with galleries and institutions and you're almost a bridge between the the local and and the international and i think that's a very important criteria um allowing you to to really go in any direction you want within the mar within the art world. <laughs> I'm looking Thank forward to, to seeing the next step. <laughs> that's that's definitely an area that I've always um, um, liked. I was, you know, part of why I became, uh, I took on more um, of a strategic role when I was with the museums is because I love being that liaison between, you know, translating in a way. I know everyone spoke the same language essentially, but but they didn't. Yeah. So translating the the culturally, uh, the expectations of one party in the West to um, the the local parties here uh, was something that I found very intriguing, very interesting, but it also meant that uh, there was always more and more dialogue um, that can be had, right? So definitely, I'm looking forward to helping yeah. with, with yeah. that area as well. Carol, darling, thank you so much. Thank you, Malak. I'm so glad you we, we, you were with me on the show. Thank you, Malak. Thank you for having me. It's um, I feel like it's never you could never have enough time to talk about art. Uh, I, I think this conversation could have gone on from institutions to museums to you know whatever for hours. Absolutely. Uh, so thank you for the opportunity to uh, to to look at the the world of art in the Middle East. Thank, thank you. you. Joining me today. 
If you've enjoyed hearing Caroline's story, we'll have a bonus episode for Members Out next week, where we discuss a regional art market in more detail and look at the hype surrounding digital art and NFTs. You can sign up now in Apple Podcasts and get a 14-day free trial, and you'll get access to all our bonus episodes throughout the season. This episode of What I Did Next was brought to you by ANT Media with me, Malak Fuad, and is co-produced by Shirag Desai. You can follow us on social media for video snippets from our interviews and other updates. Just search for What I Did Next on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We'd also be really grateful if you could take a minute and leave us a review of the show in your favorite podcast player. We hope you can catch us in two weeks' time where we'll have a new episode.